Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Happy April 8th. Those of you who were around yesterday, April 7th, know that we had an interesting conversation about social media. I had a a researcher from uh, Duke University, Chris Bale, on the show talking about uh, his new book, Breaking, not Brokering, Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. I think what Bale was talking about was our failure to listen to one another. Social media is destroying our historic ability to listen. Here is Chris on, uh, on this problem. And so in 2017, we recruited a large group of Republicans and Democrats who use Twitter, and we asked them to complete a survey about their views. Then we invited half of them to follow bots that we created that exposed them to a broad range of views from the other side, uh, journalists, politicians, elected officials, and so on. Um, and then when we resurveyed them one month later, we were very surprised to find that the Republicans who followed the Democratic pot and the Democrats who followed the Republican bot did not become more moderate. In fact, and concerningly, they became more polarized. So we're not listening. And today, uh, we're going to have a lesson in listening. My guest, uh, I think in many ways, is a professional listener. Her name is Jimena Vengoechea, uh, a lovely Basque name, which I, of course, mangled. Uh, she is a, a career listener in Silicon Valley. She's currently at uh, Pinterest, where she's the senior UX research manager. She's also very good at visualizing herself and what she does on the research team at Pinterest. And most interestingly, from our point of view, uh, Jimena has a new book out, uh, Listen Like You Mean It, Reclaiming the Lost Art of True Connection. Uh, Jimena, do you concur with Chris Bale? Um, you're both in the research business. Are we losing the ability to listen to one another? And can we blame social media for that? You work at a social media company, Pinterest. Yeah, I think that certainly there are many elements right now leading us to more disconnection between each other and less listening. I think that social media is part of that puzzle, but it's not the whole thing. There are lots of factors right now between you know, what's happening politically, culturally. Uh, also, I think a very human tendency that, that we have to focus more on ourselves than others. And so I think some of that has been happening and it's just been accelerated by some of these platforms. Uh, tell me what you do in your job. Um... You, you say, I've been a, a user researcher for nearly a decade now, but no matter how many sessions I've run, and, and this is quoting from the book, uh, every interview uh, has a moment like Charlotte's, one of the characters in, in your book, a participant is on the verge of sharing something important until their emotions, temperament, focus, and even desire to please get in the way, causing them to shut down and clam up. When this happens, every ounce of my body wants to pivot, interrupt, or save participants and myself from discomfort. 
Is your job about listening? Is that what you do? Yes. So my role as a user researcher is to understand other people and get to know their needs and their motivations, their perceptions, typically through the act of listening. So that's the primary skill set. There's definitely other components that come into play, but I'm generally trying to learn something about a person or about a group of people in order to help build better products at companies like Pinterest and LinkedIn and Twitter. And one of my favorite tools for doing that is having either a one-on-one -on -one conversation or a group conversation. And that's where really applying those listening skills comes into play where you create the space for someone to share about their experience and are right alongside them with them to help understand them better. So you are in the business quite literally, and this is the title of, of chapter five in your book of deepening the conversation. What does that mean, Jimena? What does uh, a deep conversation involve? So deepening the conversation is really about going from where I think many of us often spend our time, which is at the surface when we're listening, we're kind of hearing enough to nod and smile, to respond, you know, to not be totally unpolite about what's happening, but we're not necessarily catching the meaning, the subtext, or even the emotional experience of the other person. And chapter five, deepening the conversation is really all about asking the right questions so that you can take a conversation deeper. And so it's about asking questions that are not leading, um, not biased. And we don't often realize that we're doing this, but oftentimes the way that we position a question might include a suggestion or push the other person, just nudge them a little bit to respond. Gentle nudging. So you're in the nudging business. You're in, in a way, you're, you're a behavioral economist, a practical behavioral economist. I was struck with one uh, image uh, in the book. Um, one of the things you're in the business of doing in the book and professionally is getting people away from the me, 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 which uh, brings us back, I think, to, uh, to, to Chris Bale's book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, in which he says social media has become all about me, me, me. Is that really what good listening is about, forgetting the self? I wouldn't say that it's about forgetting the self. It certainly is about paying attention to the other person in order to really understand them. But in order to truly effectively listen, you actually have to pay a, quite a bit of attention to yourself. You have to be aware of what's happening in your body. You have to be aware of your thoughts, maybe a monologue that's starting to run the show. You have to be aware of your own sensitivities, the things that tend to set you off. We all have those hot spots that do that. And so as much as listening absolutely is about the other person, we're also always bringing ourselves into conversation. And it's being aware of how we bring ourselves into conversation that allows us to pivot and adapt as needed so that we can really connect. Yeah. And your book is about bringing yourself in. It's about, and you have all sorts of interesting images of of staying present, for example, in the conversation. Um, uh, levels of listening, what is said, what is meant, what is felt. Uh, it's, it's a very visual book. And the word that comes out most, I think, from the book and this 
art. I, I, I assume you treat it as an art rather than a science of listening, Humana. Is that fair? I would say it's somewhat of a mix because there are best practices that come into play and that's the sort of science behind it. But the art is you're continuously adapting to what's in front of you and, you know, no checklist will help you get through a conversation unscathed, let's say, or really deeply if you're not paying attention and adapting as you go. So it's a little bit of a mix. And the word that comes out of the book more than anything else is a word that's very much in vogue these days, the E word. You know what that E word is, Jimena? Empathy. (laughs) Empathy. Empathy is the key word, I think, in the book. You talk about embracing empathetic listening. What is empathy, Jimena? Yeah, so empathy is really understanding what another person is experiencing or feeling in a given moment. And I think that in most of our conversations, we don't necessarily go there for various reasons. Sometimes we don't know how to go there. Sometimes we're afraid to go there. But that's where the real human-to-human connection occurs. And so part of what the book does is show how we can go a little bit deeper and really understand another person and their experience. Empathy, as I said, is very much in the news. Uh, Last week, uh, we had Sherry Turkle, one of technology's great visionaries um, on the show, uh, talking about her new autobiography, The Empathy Diaries, which is also a book about listening and her history of listening to different kinds of people. Turkle, of course, is very well known as a critic of social media and of technology. She's written books like Alone Together and above all else, reclaiming conversation, the power of talk in a digital age. I'm not sure, uh, Jimena, if you've read Turkle's new book or Reclaiming Conversation, but is it any coincidence that we're more and more interested in listening in the age of AI? Turkle, of course, is warning us about the dangers of AI and the need to reclaim our humanity through conversation. I think it's absolutely related in the sense that we turn to technology more and more in every facet of our lives, and there's so much good that has come of it. But also, I think a side effect of that has also been this feeling of disconnection. And there tends to be also a focus on me rather than others. Um, And so, you know, I think in some ways we've sort of ramped up this focus on me, the self, rather than others. And I think that in particular, when you think about, you know, the idea of branding yourself or really developing your life online, those are absolutely in conflict in some cases with getting to know other people and being really understood by other people. And so it's not terribly surprising to me that those um, lines of thinking would begin to cross. Yeah, and I was also thinking, Jimena, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kazuo Ishiguro's new book, Clara and the Sun. It's a best-selling novel, uh, and it's about what he calls AFs. It's about uh, thinking machines. Um, I, I'm going to quote from the first paragraph. I think you'd f- actually, if you haven't read it, I think you'd find it very interesting. Um, This is the AF, the intelligent machine talking. When we were new, Rosa and I were mid-store on the magazine table side, 
and we could see through more than half of the window. So we were able to watch the outside, the office workers hurrying by, the taxis, the runners, the tourists, beggar man and his dog, the lower parts of the RPO building. I'll encourage people to read it. Above all else, though, what these AFs were trained in was empathy. They were designed to bring comfort to human beings. Um, how realistic do you think is uh, Ishiguro's vision? I'm not sure if it's a, a utopia or a, a dystopia, mm. a world in which um, empathetic machines rule our lives uh, and, and they're skilled in the conversation of empathy. I think you know it makes me it makes me think of your earlier question of whether listening is more art than science, and I think it, it has to be a, a mix in order to work effectively. And so the scenario that that is being set up in in that novel uh, makes me think of that of okay, you can program someone something to be empathetic, but could it really work when so many things are changing right in front of you when humans are fickle and imperfect and spirited in ways that don't follow a program per se. So I think that's where, if you were to kind of play that out all the way into the future, I would say, I think it's probably still going to be miss missing the humanity that makes empathy real. Well, one point, Jimena, in the book, you said, I've learned to get comfortable with discomfort. So let, let me try and make you uncomfortable. Uh, reading your book, sometimes it seems to me as if it's designed for a machine, as if uh, it's a piece of software, and that what you're teaching us in your book could be learned by a machine. What is there in your book, which is so full of, of very creative, interesting charts um, about window into the soul and self-regulation and engagement that a machine couldn't learn? An AF. I mean, why why couldn't we use your book as a manual, a UX manual for the AFs of the future? Sure. So I think certainly if you want to make it an input in, into that future, um, absolutely. I think that where where it starts to fall apart, and where I would say the the book is less a you know straightforward textbook of like do this and you will have this outcome, is when you have a real conversation with someone and they zig when you think they're going to zag or something comes up for you personally that changes the nature of the conversation. And so you're constantly taking in these different inputs. You're, you're learning about the other person. You're learning about yourself along the way. And I think that's where the dynamism comes in. And I would guess that that becomes pretty difficult to, uh, duplicate once you go down that path of really trying to program um, that in. I'm, I'm, I'm just someone who thinks that humans are much more complicated than, than we may give them credit for in that end. We are, or at least I hope we are. I hope we're not <laughs> going to be able to be replicated by machines. And of course, all books, even yours is in some way, or are in some ways confessionals. At the end of your book, You Come Clean, you say that um, you need to be listened to too and that um, you go to a therapist and that much of your learning about listening has been done through your experience with therapy. 
to, to what extent, um, in reading your book, sometimes I got the sense that the kind of listening that you're suggesting is one that exists between a therapist and their patient, maybe we use the word patient or client or customer. Is there a new language of therapy that's becoming mainstream that you are in a sense peddling in your book? I don't know that there's, you know, a version of therapy that I'm necessarily peddling in the book, but I think that what I what I'm trying to do is connect the dots between these different kinds of expert listeners and the ways in which they're able to really understand people. And so my particular expertise is as a user researcher and learning those skills within the context of a user research lab or a field study, taking an ethnographic, an ethnographic approach. Um, but I think there's also plenty that we can learn from the field of therapy. Those are trained listeners in a really different way. And yet in conversations, both with my own therapist and also talking to other therapists, life coaches, even journalists, you start to see that there are some commonalities in across these listening fields um, that allow these professionals to go deeper than, than we might normally do without that intentionality or that skill set. Perhaps we might describe this new economy or culture as the the empathy economy or the empathy culture there's also at least in my mind as a male a strong female quality to the kind of listening that you're suggesting we had the futurist Mauro Guilen on the show he's written a new book called 2030 he's predicting that in 2030 women might rule the world is the the listening culture this culture of empathy that you are promoting and writing about? Is there something distinctively female about it or am I just a paranoid male here? <laughs> I do think that there is a cultural distinction that's been made, rightly or wrongly, that, you know, speaking up, for instance, we associate more with men and things like listening and empathy, we associate more with women. I think that we all have all of those parts to us. I have the speaking up part, just as you have the listening and empathy part. But culturally, what's been rewarded within these groups, it, it has led to this distinction of, you know, you're not the first person to suggest that this might be a more feminine quality. And I think in reality, we have all of these qualities. It's just that we've been socialized or rewarded for some of them more than others. Yeah, you have this uh, chart on um, nonverbal gestures, um, uh, which is one reason why I'm not putting the camera on myself. It's all on <laughs> you, Jimena. Um, do men and women have different kinds of nonverbal gestures, or is it, in your experience, pretty similar? In my experience, a lot of it is pretty similar. Um, you know, for example, neck touching, that's something both men and women do, and that can be a way of calming yourself down or, you know, an expression of anxiety in some way. I think where it differs is maybe if a woman's wearing a necklace, she might pull on that. And if a man's got, you know, a tie, he might pull on that. But the the general gesture, um, I think, is often shared across genders. One of my favorite images in the book is this idea that some people make us feel more alive than alone. Is that really what good listening is about making us feel essentially human, maybe escaping that AF of the future? 
I think when when we really truly feel heard, we, we do come out of conversations feeling uplifted or energized because to feel known as an individual, to feel recognized, to feel understood, it doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen in every conversation. And so I do find that you know, when you have those really deep conversations where you feel like, wow, this person gets me, there's a little pep in your step afterwards. And, and part of the reason that exists is because it is somewhat rare, because most of our conversations don't necessarily lead us to feel that way, that known. Yeah. The, and, and the crisis that Chris Bale talks about, the, the social media prism crisis, is a crisis of democracy. We've had many, many sh uh, shows about the contemporary crisis of democracy, in, in particularly in the United States. Um, to what extent is the crisis of listening in our culture the crisis of democracy as well? Uh, you know, I think there's probably a pretty clear thread there when you think about um, some of the, the political divisiveness that exists, particularly in this moment, which is uh, definitely mag magnified uh, on social media there's an undercurrent of just not listening, right? Like people are not listening to the other side or trying to get to know the other side or trying to understand the other side. And I think you see that at all levels. Um, and certainly you could play that out into the, the most extreme form uh, you know, of dictatorship. <laughs> if you're a dictator, who do you listen to? You listen to yourself, <laughs> right? It's a completely self-serving. Um, me, me, me. Power. Right, exactly. And so I think absolutely you could draw that line. It's ironic, of course, or some people I think will get the irony that you as um, a senior person at a Silicon Valley company at Pinterest, um, you also worked at Twitter in user research, uh, you're an expert in in the customer and in the kind of communication you do with your customer. But of course, Silicon Valley is doing a very bad job at promoting itself with the rest of the world, of getting others to listen. Uh, Pinterest itself um, has been um, in the news recently about the way it treats some female uh, employees. It's not unusual. And of course... Uh, the three horsemen of Silicon Valley, uh, or at least the three horsemen of tech, uh, Zuckerberg, um, uh, Dorsey, who used to work for at, at Twitter, and uh, Pichai at uh, Google, they were in Washington, D.C., facing lawmakers. They didn't do a very good job at getting D.C. to listen to them. Why is Silicon Valley, on the one hand, um, a pioneer in the technology and the science of listening, and yet does such a bad job getting people to listen to what we, and I'm part of Silicon Valley in some ways as much as you, are trying to say. I think this is where the, the humanity of listening hits against the goals of the business. Uh, I think you see that in a lot of industries, not just tech, where what's right in some ways, isn't necessarily what's going to be taken up because of the business, or there are some complicated trade-offs that need to happen. Um, and so, you know, I think there there have been many people who've explored this topic much more than I have of 
the need to step away, for instance, from advertising as the primary. Who, who do you model. like in that area? Who, who, who do you think it makes a good argument? I honestly haven't gone super deep into it, so I can't recommend anyone, but I know that it's it's a prevailing and, and not unconvincing argument. You know, I think um, uh, Tim Kendall, who used to work at Pinterest and has since launched launched his own company, I think when he was testifying in front of Congress, um, you know, spoke to that effect. He was on the advertising side of the business. Um, I think Tristan Harris has mentioned this as well. Some of the folks mm. in the social dilemma, um, but you know, it, it makes sense, right? If you're optimizing for one thing, then you have to, uh, ignore <laughs> these other things, which may be in fact, more valuable in many ways. Um, so I do think that there may be some good intentions, but also it's time for, for change at the same time. And I don't think that's, uh, an unpopular opinion at this stage. Yeah. Tristan Harris has actually been on the show. He's in a very articulate and strongly opinionated character. And I wonder, Jimena, uh, you say that the art of listening requires us to, what you say, check your biases. But we all have biases, and if we check them, don't we become AFs, uh, really, that, um, good, that good conversation, good listening can be done even if you don't check your biases? Why should we check our biases? I think it's important to check your biases to know what you're working with and what you might be hearing more or less of. So the point is not to check them as in like, just get rid of them completely in the sense that uh, they're informed by who we are. We're always bringing that into conversation. The point is more to be aware of what biases you're bringing into conversation and whether or not it's appropriate in that given setting or context or for that topic. Because again, that's going to inform how we listen. If I'm always listening for a certain thing to come up in conversation, because that's what I'm naturally biased to, I'm I'm not necessarily listening anymore because I'm listening for a specific thing as opposed to listening for what's actually being said. Well, Jimena, uh, the, the subtitle of your book is Listen Like You Mean It. How's this conversation been? Have we done a good job? Am I doing a good job listening or am I pursuing my own agenda? I would say, and this is probably partly your job, you're doing a good, a good mix of both. Because I think if you were just listening without pursuing your own agenda, it would be a totally different conversation. And uh, I think that's right for, for this conversation. Well, you're very kind, Humane. I don't know what you really think, but uh, you do a good job uh, encouraging me. Uh, don't encourage me too much. Uh, you had this wonderful section in the book, which I can't find now. I had a slide on it and I lost it, but it's this wonderful section on how to end a, a conversation. So maybe you can help me end this conversation. What, what's the best way to, to end a conversation in terms of listening? I would say that here being really going really simple is often the best. So I think some people feel like they have to come up with an elaborate excuse for why they need to end a conversation and really just saying like, it was so great to catch up with you. I'm sure you need to get going or I need to get going now, but like ha happy to have chatted. That's, that's a very easy thing to say. I hope, uh, Jimena, we've escaped from surface listening and surface chatter. It's been a wonderful conversation. I think you've done a great job. Uh, this, Your new book 
listen like you mean it, reclaiming the lost art of true connection is really a, an excellent, I think, compliment to, book, to new books by people like Sherry Turkle and uh, Ishiguro, much more practical but interesting. I know you're in New Mexico at the moment, so we are unfortunately in the electronic business of listening uh, at mm-hmm. the moment, uh, Jimena. But in addition to your new book, what else should people be reading as we're still locked inside in these strange times in April 2021? Sure. So I'm really enjoying, I just finished reading Nobody Will Tell You This But Me by Bess Kalb. And it's a sort of matrilineal love story. It's very interesting from a craft perspective where it mixes a grandmother's voice, some images, some contemporary storytelling, um, and it's a it'll it'll make you laugh and it'll make you cry. So that's that's what I'm reading. Well, I'm not sure if this conversation has made anyone laugh or cry, but I hope it's been interesting. And I appreciate Humana your 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 spirit and generosity in appearing on the show. And I hope I made you slightly discomfortable, but not too discomfortable. Thank you so much. Good luck with Pinterest, and we will talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.